0: A new report in as many months shows that Muslims
1: have similar, but not the same, values as British people. Eventually, certain professions were banned for all Muslims, including bus drivers, as their offspring were becoming too successful in gaining positions of power. This was an unexpected turn of events, and as Muslims became less predictable, new ways to predict their behaviour had to be invented.
0: If a Muslim is going to be sexist, It should be done in the English way and not the Arabic way.
1: As the number of worries about Muslims increased, so did the number of government and charity reports. And with such detailed and inaccurate analysis, Muslims began to get lazy and stop thinking for themselves. Why should they when they could just read these policy papers in order to understand how to think and behave? This was a new form of addiction that Muslims had not experienced before. Yes, they were addicted to melodrama and all things sweet, but reports was a new phenomenon. You would find them on street corners, whispering, I need my policy paper high. I need another ten recommendations. It got to the point where clinics had to be set up for this new form of policy addiction. Muslims would go missing for weeks, reading up on new ways of being Muslim. The reports started to become like soap operas and soon they became the script for how Muslims would act and how everyone else would respond This new intelligence-led research ethically approved by universities unearthed startling new inequalities Pakistani mums were force-feeding their children sliced pears and when the child refused the fruit they were called stupid and reminded of how lucky they were that they were being force-fed with love But most of all it allowed the UK's institutions to predict Muslim behaviour.
2: A report by the leading think tank, The Spectacle, reveals chicken shops as new hubs of extremism and anti-Britishness. The report claims that Muslims are gaining a new monopoly on eating chickens and should be made to eat other meats.
0: I'm Rory richtenstein Juvenile, reporting common news for the common folk. And I'm joined today by Sajid here. Sajid, is there any truth that the spicy wings here are actually a secret recruiting tool for extremists and that police are waiting to arrest Muslims depending on what items they order? Bro, if you buy chicken and chips, you're fine. But as soon as you start adding a spicy burger, yeah, oh my days are going to get you. Even ain't safe no more. Many choices are dangerous, you get me?
1: And so the government, in partnership with academics... Scriptwriters, imams, chicken shops, halal butchers, and Italian furniture shops created policy that would also double up as scripts to help shape Muslim behaviour. Secret units were set up to link Muslim characters and plots. There was the cultural Muslim, the compliant Muslim, the not really Muslim, and the inconvenient Muslim.
0: Maximum integration. A new community workout from Inner Pickle, designed to help you flex those fundamental British value muscles. Don't take our word for it though. Hear what Muslims have to say for themselves.
2: I had my doubts at first, but after seven weeks on the program, I almost forgot I am actually a Muslim.
0: I saw the benefits straight away. The only Mecca I'm interested in going to now involves being going to fat ladies. <laughs> Maximum integration helping to create a new nation.
1: It became difficult to tell which stories were planted and which were natural, inevitable calamities. Muslims not apologetic enough after a terrorist attack. A minister forgets to hide his true feelings about Muslim women wearing hijabs. A member of the royal family converts to Islam. But let's go back in time when moisturising would prove fatal to so many Muslim characters.
0: Really an indicator of extremism, then?
2: The Secretary of State absolutely thinks it's a sound indicator. Dry hands? Dry hands. They will say it's because they pray five times a day. But I go to the toilet at least five times a day and I don't have dry hands or psoriasis. They're handling other substances. So what should doctors
0: be asking? I mean, not every Muslim with psoriasis will be an extremist.
2: No, but I had a friend in school who was Muslim and his mum was moisturising him a lot. And we were... I can't remember how old, but we were in primary... So what I'm trying to say is there is a tradition of moisturising in Muslim communities. It would be strange to have dry skin unless something else is going on.
0: Well, of course, sure. And I guess the Muslims are also covering their tracks by bulk-buying moisturiser.
2: We'll have to incorporate this into additional prevent training. Photos of normal hands and photos of dry hands. Muslims shopping normally. Muslims looking suspicious while buying moisturiser.
0: I wonder what brands they use. What are are the halal ones?
2: My friend definitely smelt of oil of Yule.
0: Oh, I've got a bloody great idea. So that we can say we've had some Muslim input. Let's call in that, you know, that Amjad fellow and shake his hands and see how soft they are. Uh, Right, I've just texted him. Of course, let's keep this normal and not at all about his religion. (laughs) Of course.
2: It's about dry hands.
0: Uh, Well, no, it's also about security, but... Oh, ah! Amjad, good to see you, old chap. Uh, let me shake your hand. Okay. Uh, what's this about? Uh, well, I just wanted to congratulate you on um, how smooth you always look. Like marble. Muslim marble. Uh, actually, I don't. I don't know if there's such a thing. Although I guess perhaps that's what the Taj Mahal was made of. Anyway, uh, do you do you get manicures? Uh, is this one of those covert tests for black and brown civil servants? Because if it is... No,
2: look, your smoothness is a positive for us. It means you're, well, going to fit in well and not be unexpected. Yes.
1: Obviously, the next step was to implement spot checks on whether Muslims and Muslim-looking people could sing the national anthem on demand. All eight verses.
3: Hello and welcome to The Future is Muslim.
4: The podcast that uses a dangerous dose of absurd humour with a side of serious chat to take a closer look at what it means to be Muslim today and in the future. I'm Latifa Akai.
3: And I'm Rahil Mohammed. And this is a Muslaha podcast. And we're really lucky to be joined by Dr Azizat Johnson. Hello.
5: Hello. Hi. <laughs>
3: um so azizat uh, a social geographer at queen mary university of london and her project and her work unpacks the racial histories that inform black women's current lives in london and she is also the co-editor of the fire is now the fire now the fire now mm. i don't know want to add an extra no. <laughs> <laughs> so azizat like you just <laughs> you've just heard the sketch yeah what stood out for you
5: Oh, wow. I mean, I guess it's the normalcy of Islamophobia, to be honest, like um, because it becomes so part of our everyday experience. It's not even something that we really notice anymore. And it becomes so tied to your everyday like um, interactions, your everyday actions. And for me, that's um, part of the absurdity, sure, but also Mm -hmm. part of the heartbreak when we think about what people are dealing with um, and how scared they are of being perceived in the wrong way. So, yeah, one of the things that I guess I've been talking a lot to my friends as well is this constant need to prove belonging, right? You Mm -hmm. constantly need to prove that you are uh, not an extremist, that you are fitting into society. And no matter how many times you provide evidence for this, there is always more evidence that Mm -hmm. needs to happen. So what does it mean to refuse those kind of debates, right? To Mm -hmm. refuse the constant need for endless evidence to prove our humanity when as Sahema has said, um, if we need to prove our humanity, we've already lost. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the main thing, I think.
3: And yeah. I think I guess for me, the bit that kind of touches on that is is the kind of list of the It's like there's there's only f- four or five different types of Muslims you can be. So mm-hmm. the the cultural Muslim or the compliant Muslim or mm-hmm. the not really Muslim or mm-hmm. the kind of inconvenient Muslim. And it's how like how do you work? How do you work outside of those? categories in, a, in both a kind of intellectual way but also a practical way as well yeah
5: but also thinking about how like I mean I know you know the people who were then responding to the racism were just there in moments but actually that's a really important like moment for us to think about mm-hmm. how they are aware of what it means for them to be seen in a particular way um, so at the very end you know reflecting on oh is this just another one of those tests that you're going to give Muslims mm-hmm. who are in the civil service that's an example of us like being aware that these are the narratives that you have to fit into and refusing them, you know? Um, Even if it's just through small actions, like letting them know that you are aware that these are the tests. Yeah, Yeah. 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 you've seen it for what it is and Mm -hmm. you're not going to... Yeah, you're not going to cooperate. Yeah. 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 I mean you have to cooperate because yeah. it's your job. <laughs> you yeah. you're there. You have to work with these people. Yeah. But there's a limitation to what you're willing to do without forcing them to look at themselves as well, you know? Yeah. yeah. That's what's needed as well in this moment. Yeah. How do we force people to confront whiteness as opposed mm-hmm. to thinking about like Islamophobia as located on Muslim bodies? Mm-hmm. Well, that's mm-hmm. where we need to be going more. Is there anything in terms of that question that is like I guess that you're you're
4: you're thinking it could be like a road forward at mm-hmm. the minute, Ooh. or that is like inspi- in kind of not even inspiring is a poorly chosen word in the context, but like yeah, is there anything in that question that you're kind of thinking about at the minute?
5: Yeah, so I guess I mean I've been thinking a lot about um, what it means for us to work within predominantly white institutions mm-hmm. and to work within sites of so much colonial violence that are continuously ignored, continuously undermined. Um, and so then, I don't know, I guess it's really important for me to constantly sh- like, s- put the gaze back or yeah, shift the energy back at whiteness and really force people when they invite me to places to speak about things, really force them to confront whiteness mm-hmm. as opposed to use that as like a moment to gain insight into black Muslim women mm-hmm. and what we happen to be doing or wearing in different spaces, mm-hmm. right? It's way more important for me to be like, yes, yes, we are out here living our lives, absolutely. But like, this is how whiteness functions. Maybe take an opportunity to think about that and reflect on that within your scholarship. Um, I'm not sure whether that's like practical advice. It's as much as it is, I don't know. I think that there's these two aspects to it, right? On the one hand, you need to force as many white people to be as uncomfortable as possible with whiteness. And then on the other hand, separate from that, there's also a centering of our own emotional and psychological well-being and that then becomes the priority for like my scholarship um as opposed to like trying to convince people of your humanity Mm. when uh, yeah that's not a debate i'm willing to engage in anymore Um, yeah and i guess that's what in the media at the minute like i spent like
4: it's what a lot of kind of like women of colour, black woman in particular, mm. are experiencing in terms of just coming onto TV to talk about things and mm-hmm. then just being pushed into these like positions where you're being called racist for yeah. calling out racism and being yeah. forced to debate racism and therefore your own existence. Um, and yeah, and I guess that seems to be that's a question that people are asking. How do we balance our emotional yeah. like, well-being um, yeah. and, you know, mental health with they need to kind of like hold some of these um, people and, and bodies to account.
5: Yeah, personally, I just I, I don't think that there's anything. I mean, media at this stage have just there's no mm. conversations that we can have um, in popular media around Islamophobia or anti-blackness more generally that have been constructive to be honest because it's oh you will always get into this back oh i've I've never seen racism what are you Mm. talking about racism there's no such thing give me an example and it's like the ground you walk on is the example like the fact that we are here in this country the fact that we have built borders around what britain is as opposed to the british empire yeah is Mm. an example
3: um can you unpack that a bit as you said because i think people will be will be like what does that mean like yeah like to, to live in a in a racist in an in a, in a inherently racist society like yeah
5: I mean I guess like one of the things that I always say is you know there is no Britain outside of Empire there's never been a Britain outside of Empire right so all of the like when we think about the NHS when we think about the royal family when we think about the services that we have developed in this country—they are all built from colonial, like, like um, exploits, right? So there is no understanding of the resources and the infrastructure that we have access to in Britain outside of Black and Brown lives beyond the, like. What is Britain now, today? Um, And for me, this is part of the frustration when we are asked to engage in conversations around immigration, Mm. pretending as if the vast majority of black and brown people who were always a part of the British Empire have no connection to Britain today, given that they literally built it. Their ancestors quite literally built it. so what does it mean then for us to reject that kind of like entering into a conversation that requires us to already be on the back foot and instead be like everything that is here, that is that this country has been built on? Yeah.
3: So there's just on, on that kind of topic of reverting the gaze oh. almost. So Toni Morrison's, one of Toni Morrison's essays, Black, Black Matters. Oh. Um, and she she talks about um There are also powerful and persuasive attempts to analyse the origin and fabrication of racism itself, contesting the assumption that it is inevitable and an internal part of all social landscapes. I do not wish to disparage these inquiries. It is precisely because of them that any progress at all has been accomplished. But then she goes on to say, but that well-established study should be joined with another equally important one, the impact of racism on those who perpetuate it. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, just hearing you say that, this, like it chimes with this. It's actually and it's what you said about what, you know, what Saheim was saying as well. Mm -hmm. Like if like, what does this do to, you know, society or the individual Mm -hmm. who is also carrying out these racist attacks?
5: And like not even necessarily like like explicitly racist attacks, because that's what I really want us to move away from thinking Mm -hmm. about, that Mm -hmm. it's not. I mean, yes, there are, there is violence on the street, and we should be worried about it. But more than that, it's the normalcy mm. of whiteness, right? It's it's treated as the norm. Um, that's part of the violence to me of like imagining racial minorities in quote in quotation marks in this moment. Given the in if we think about Britain as empire. Racial minorities doesn't even make any sense, right? Because we are literally the global majority, especially when we think mm. about the history of Britain as empire. So I think that violence of like never really forced, never really looking at how whiteness is naturalized and treated as the majority, mm. as the norm, um, that we really need to be challenging in this moment, right? And mm. that's part of the kind of refusing any any engagement with um, you know attempts to humanize us for people who. Have already participated in so much dehumanisation. Mm,
3: yeah. I, I wonder if that's kind of linked to because something else that comes out in the sketch is this idea about who who builds up a body of knowledge.
4: Yeah, so, yeah, the policy paper high yeah. Yeah. at the start of the sketch. Yeah. yeah,
3: and you know, I've been in a number of meetings where um, there is this kind of sort of deference to the kind of the kind of educational institution. Yeah, um, you know, not just you know from from all you know from people of color as well. Like yeah. you know, we need. And, but there are problems within that because those yeah, academics yeah. have gone through a particular yeah. type of training yeah. and you know some as somebody who works yeah. within that environment how do you how do you navigate that and yeah
5: thank you uh, that's <laughs> no it's a good question and i think it's always weird to me that like um yeah, like I get a lot of invitations to speak and I realize that part of the reason why I'm invited to speak in these places is because I do have legitimacy, like institutional legitimacy, right? Mm. Um and it's yeah, like people when they're introducing me as like doctor, I'm like, Oh wow, yeah, that is that is <laughs> that is a part of <laughs> how I'm manipulated. Yeah. Yeah. That's part of how I mean, other than my family who I have requested only refer to me as Doctor Johnson, but <laughs> Who never listen of course um, yeah. yeah yeah i've tried but it's, it's failed um but yeah like i think i i think that there's a lot of um damage to be on, honest like done when we look to academic institutions or policy uh, circles or journalists at, across all levels um for defining who and how muslims mm. live um today because I think that's part of the violence of this moment. We're not actually allowed to define who we are for ourselves. We are asked to compare ourselves to a standard that was never really meant to like, be used by us in any kind of way. So the fact that there are a couple of us now in academic spaces, in policy circles, in journalist circles, great. Congratulations. <laughs> I'm glad for you for making that money that's fantastic um but beyond that like what are you actually doing to contribute back into the communities that you belong to Mm. and how do we actually use those positions to trouble the kind of assumption that by virtue of me having that position i have more legitimacy to talk about islamophobia Mm. or to talk about anti-black race like anti-blackness when we know we really do know that the people who've always been doing this work are the people on the ground right our mothers right um the people who are working in the community even if it's not formally, right, just setting up sister circles, setting up mm. um, places for their kids to play, uh, setting up activities for people to be doing on the weekend as well, you know, organising Eid parties, all of these things are part of how you know yourself and mm. how you care for yourself. And that's way more important than the kind of ways that institutions look to define you, right, yeah. through policy, as we can see in this document. That's such an important question. Yeah. And I guess, like,
4: like you said, so many people are doing this in so many like different kind of like incredible ways and just in through their existence also doing it. And I guess it reminded me a bit of like some of what um, Grata Columba, the Mm. um, scholar and um, writer, and she talks about the concept of knowledge as like just a series of power relations, racial and gender power relations Mm. that basically define what is truth. Mm. And it's that sense of like what gets to be seen as truth, what gets to be seen, what knowledge counts as knowledge. And I think that's something that communities of colour always have to face. It's this sense of like your knowledge is not valid enough. Yeah. It's not, how do you prove that's true? That's yeah. your experience. Yeah. That is also a kind of like a constant, I guess, yeah. um, like pushback against that idea that we, we're speaking from personal, individual, yeah. emotional places yeah. instead of,
5: yeah. And I think, I mean, so I've been thinking a lot about emotions and specifically how like, I don't know, within academic spaces, there's quite a lot of suppression of your emotional responses. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're not really meant to, when you're faced with, you know, conferences or seminars or lectures of academics presenting incredibly uh, violent research Mm -hmm. about, like, Islamophobia or anti-blackness, you're not meant to be emotional, right? You're not meant to respond from a place of anger. You're meant to be able to just, like, in a careful tone explain to them why all that they're doing is problematic. And that, I think, is another form of violence Mm -hmm. because you're not allowed to have the full range yeah. of your it, emotional... like, It makes you dissociate, basically. Yeah, yeah It's exactly. like
4: dissociate yourself. And yeah. that is, like, really harmful.
5: There's yeah. such a separation between yeah. who you are, like, who you know you mm. are and who you're told you can be in this room, right? Mm. So in order for you to fit into this room, you have to ignore all of the things that created you in the first place. Mm. So how do we actually think about, like, standing in your own truth, um, in community with the people who see that as well, right? So those spaces are no longer, like our uh, center, our focus, instead, we're actually looking away and realizing, okay, fine, I might have to navigate this in order for me to continue getting that money. But beyond that, like, I can look elsewhere. I know that I can work with people who are across different disciplines, across different industries, and who see this moment, and who actually do want to do something with the kind of, yeah, the terror and trauma that comes with being Black and Muslim in this moment, you know?
3: yeah and also i guess something that i've kind of we've been thinking a bit about maslahar as well is you know the idea of um you know the, the people that came before us yeah or are still here some who, who are not yeah so, you know we you know we, we're at a point now i think somebody was saying to me you know after the election like you know why don't you just leave mm. why can't you you know why you know and it's interesting that people mm. are talking people of color are talking about that yeah and you know part of me is thinking well you know, we we will have relatives now who are buried in this soil. Yeah. You know their memories and yeah. Um, and I guess it's like, how do we pass on knowledge and yeah. memories to that next generation yeah. so that it's not lost? Because if I, th- I guess, if mm. anything, if we know that's happened in the past, how do we make sure that doesn't happen again?
5: Yeah. Oh, I think that's a really good like point. I and I think that we're feeling it in different ways as well. I was talking to one of my mentees like amber who's like amazing mm. in a lot of ways <laughs> um in all of the ways but um she was talking about yeah no <laughs> shout out to her <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but yeah she was talking about you know the experience of so she's black and she was talking about like how you know certain people are like oh i'm gonna leave i'm gonna leave the country and she's um jamaican or originally from jamaica and she was like well that's not an option for a lot of us. Like, what does it mean that there mm-hmm. is no leaving? Um, this is the only home you've known and you mm-hmm. can't really go back to another place of safety because it's just not, there's nowhere that you can go that is safe to be a black person. I don't know, I guess there were two parts to what you were saying, right? This kind of, well, what does it mean that there are a lot of people who have died in this country, but also that there, have a lot, there are a lot of people who have died Um, as they're trying to enter into this country Mm -hmm. or on the periphery of this country. So the Atlantic Ocean, right? Mm. The Mediterranean Sea, all which contain so much death, so much death and destruction. So how do we actually honor those lives? You know, the ones who are unnamed, Mm -hmm. the ones who will never be on this soil, because that's part of the like when we're thinking about the dehumanization or the normalization of Islamophobia, it's not just with those of us who happen to make it in here. Mm. It's also with those who will never, ever be here, right? Mm. Um, Because, I mean, there's no way we can talk about uh, terrorism today without thinking about Mm. the effects that, like, this has on, like, a lot of brown Muslims in brown places, right, who never even make it Mm. to the UK's borders to begin
3: with. Yeah. And it's also interesting about how, I, I think it's that idea of how, Oppression can be exported. Mm. So something I, you know, I, this was a few years ago, I was at a conference and it was, you know, there were like ministers from different like governments. Mm. There were like p- individuals from like really like international organisations, mm. and there were people from these different governments talking in really kind of glowing terms about prevent counterterrorism policy, and they were <sighs> basically saying it's worked so well in in the UK. And I, I was kind of looking around. I went. Is it a joke? Is no it yeah. a nightmare? Uh, <laughs> sort of stuck my hand up. and said, "No." Yeah. Like, do you know? But it's interesting how it's successfully been exported yeah. as a kind of product. Yeah. It's almost like the actually the empire hasn't. St- yeah. <laughs> it's another form mm. of like. Yeah. Colonialism, yeah. right? Yeah. It's kind of like we're we've we've like created this policy yeah. of control, and yeah. we're now going to export it to you. And I imagine there's some sort of payment for it. I don't yeah. know. You know. Mm. And it's kind of that's really interesting. You know. Yeah. Um, which means there's this is thing about this internationalism, I guess as yeah, well, yeah,
5: I mean, I yeah, I don't think that there's any conversation we can be having around like Islamophobia and empire, right, mm-hmm. um which do, isn't going to be putting those things together because you have to be thinking about well what is what are the connections beyond our particular location? um, how do we think about the fact that like you know Boris Johnson and the like when they were campaigning for like Brexit were, like, arguing in favor of Australia's, like, immigration um, policies, right? Which we know are ridiculously racist. Like, And I use the word ridiculously racist intentionally, right? Um, So there's something about the way in which white supremacy, like, perpetuates itself across our different contexts that Mm -hmm. I think is really important for us to, like, confront and then also start to act from, right? So it's not just we happen to experience... These violence is here, but how does that connect us to many other people mm-hmm. who are not actually here? And actually, I think that also connects to the other point you were making around, like, that feeling you have when you're in those rooms where people are saying mm-hmm. things that are, like, so yeah. wi- like, just wild to awesome. you. Yeah. 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 And you're just, you're looking around trying to find any other person yeah. who, like, sees you in that moment, right? sees the violence for what it is. And I think that's also part of what I'm talking about in terms of shifting our focus away from those rooms. Well, for me anyway, right now, being really keen to shift my focus away from those rooms that I know I will not get any nourishment mm-hmm. from. And so then mm-hmm. my role in that room, in that moment, is to be a disruptor. Um, it's not because mm-hmm. I think that, that anything will change. It's just to disrupt mm-hmm. yeah. um, and then go back to the people who I can actually work with and then build something different, yeah. right? Yeah. Build a response that yeah. is actu- that can actually be sustained yeah. because you're nourished. Yeah, um, Yeah. Yeah. And that reminds me, I
4: guess, talking about the rooms, this this whole scenario and this sketch about the dry mm. hands. And mm. um, I was shocked to hear that it was based on a true story.
3: I mean, it's, you know, as mm. as you like saying, a lot of this stuff sounds really absurd, but it yeah. is so much yeah. based on like, you know, encounters that we've had. Yeah. So I was in a meeting with a number of other charities, uh, voluntary sector workers, people of colour uh, with a minister who was also a practicing GP or still is. I'm not sure. Oh, God. And so he got slightly frustrated with me bringing up a question around just the fact that everything we've been talking about how like muslims are constantly mm-hmm. viewed through this kind of radicalization lens mm-hmm. and he sort of started telling a story about how one of his patients came to see him and you know it was a, he was a patient he'd known for a while um so a muslim guy and he mm-hmm. said you know he suddenly looked like he'd become more religious so i'm guessing he you know he had a, he had a beard he started yeah. dressing differently yeah. and so this patient says to the gp slash minister you know, I think my hands, I've got sort of psoriasis on my hands, I think. I mm. think they've got drier because I'm sort of praying five times a day. Mm. And so this minister sort of s- sits back in his chair and says, and do you know what I did? I referred him to prevent mm. because I am sure he was handling dodgy substances, mm. chemical substances. Mm. And he looked really pleased with himself. Yeah, and the whole back. room just was, I mean, everyone was just really shocked. Yeah. You know, it was like, I don't even know where to yeah um.
5: no because I I think so there are two levels to that right there's the surveillance of Muslim bodies that happens Mm. constantly and the underpinning like violence that comes with that surveillance Um, but also then how that surveillance becomes internalized because I you know, so many students, right, who are aware that if they show anger at someone saying something mm. like that, um, they would Im- immediately be seen as a problem, right? So you can't even be angry. You can't even be sad about the fact that we this is what we have come to, um, that a GP, that a medical professional could mm. <laughs> sit down and think that referring someone to a counter-extremism um, like measure is actually important simply because they had dry hands that in and of itself tells us how like, how far gone we are yeah. now. Yeah. Um, and also one of the reasons why like I'm just, I'm done, I'm done, I'm, just- <laughs> yeah. I'm done, She's I got, she- thank you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, very much the energy that I'm bringing to my everyday lived existence, which is like, oh, I've got nothing left in me for you. <laughs> yeah. If you cannot see white supremacy for what it is at this stage, like my guy, you are mm. truly lost and I have no desire God to find you. help you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. god will you know you have chosen complicity within these structures Mm. um if you can hear an example like that and not think about all of the different ways that islamophobia is perpetuated in our daily existence and i mean this in leftist spaces where they're all like oh yeah islamophobia is super horrible but like let's go to the pub instead of trying out Mm. you know what i mean like there's so many different ways that these things perpetuate themselves that Mm. i'm like you We need to be having a lot more frank conversations Mm -hmm. about complicity within wider structures of of Islamophobia and white supremacy instead of just Mm. this, oh, hold hands, we're all working together.
4: (laughs) (laughs) But the complicity, it's an interesting question because I think that's what's for a lot of people living as we do with with something like prevent operating across most of our institutions. So what you hear a lot is, you know, at schools, teachers will be like, oh, yeah, we know that prevent is bad, but like... This is safeguarding. We've had these conversations about mm. the kind of negative Im- implications, but also you suddenly see how this operates where things become really normalised yeah. and then they they separate the, the distance between that kind of like racist and Islamophobic root will yeah. increase. But actually, it's completely still there. Yeah. And I guess in terms of like um, British values, which comes up in yeah. this sketch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think about that a lot as well, because it's language that has been really, really normalised at schools to, in yeah. a really weird extent. I mean, I go into schools a lot and all schools have like loads of Union Jacks up. They have oh, really, wow. they have really like strange posters. Like and some of those posters, I've seen some wacky stuff. Like it'll be like cutlery and it'll be like British like table manners. So it's like really going into like really problematic, like civilising kind yeah. of like rhetoric around like what it means to be like proper or what it means to like yeah. speak right and do whatever right. and um, And I guess the interesting thing is I've heard a lot of people say, oh, British, but fundamental British values refers to all of us. Like mm. it's kind of like this is these are this isn't specifically about like Muslims. Mm. But then but the the thing is that like fundamental values in in the UK did emerge out of it emerged out of that Trojan horse affair yeah. in Birmingham yeah. in 2014. But I guess like they after the after the Trojan horse affair, it, it shifted the onus on schools shifted from schools should respect British values to schools have to actively promote British values. Mm. So like that is a point at which we have to go back to, Mm. like that was about Muslims Mm. and that was about making that was about a false plot to basically create a sense of like Muslims being an integration issue. So we know that's where British values comes from. But but there is this sense that in schools and well, I, I say schools because that's the context I'm in most, mm-hmm. but that it is a very, that it's neutral, yeah. but it's not neutral. Yeah. And it's like, that's another phenomenon, I guess, like these things separate in a way yeah. and being seen as everyday, but they're not everyday. Yeah. I mean, I
3: think even just, you know, the words themselves, so there's another sort of uh, uh, a policy around of extremism, which is called a building a stronger Britain together. Mm. But, you know, I'm and laughing. it sounds so b- benign and mm. kind of mm. like... Oh, Of course, this is going to be really positive, but Mm. I I almost wonder if it's kind of like we have to be clever about the way that we use words.
5: Mm. Yeah, I completely agree. I think we need to be a lot more. We need to create our own words, to be honest, like Mm -hmm. because the language that currently exists in the public sphere is not one that is to our benefit. Right. If we're asked to enter into a conversation to describe someone either as a villain or a victim. Or, as like, you know, yeah, as as a problem um in one way or the other, defend it or attack like that is not a language that is going to help us in any kind of way. So, what does it mean for us to create a different alternative? Mm. what What does it mean for us to actually imagine something for ourselves, right? Writing ourselves into existence? What does that mm. look like? Um, and for me, that's mm. like a really exciting conversation because it shifts the focus away from all of the ways that we've been dehumanized or vilified Mm. and towards what we're actually going to do with that knowledge right so we're standing so coming back to the conversation around Mm. standing in your truth right feeling Mm. okay what does it mean for you to recognize the emotions that you are feeling in this moment and then use that to actually like facilitate something different so we're not just reacting you know yeah
3: yeah i normally sort of wind this up, like saying, can you like, you know, we've given uh, a sort of absurd, surreal version of the future. Like, how do you imagine?
5: Oh, I don't know. Future is always difficult for me, especially Mm. because like I've been thinking about like, yeah, my own um, kind of reckoning with chronic illness and chronic pain. And what it means that I find it really hard to like imagine a future, but also then thinking about what we're talking about in relation to like ancestors, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And the many other generations that, you know, have passed, whether in the UK or outside, um, and how we can then connect to the many others that will come after us as well. So in many ways, it's not even about like a future where we are in existence. It's actually about a future that goes beyond any of us right that's mm. what that's literally what we're fighting for in this moment we're trying to find new ways to relate to one another which can then outlast structures of violence and that's hard work that's a long task um and i think that's where we need to go that's what we need mm. to start doing thank, thank you, you so much <laughs> it's been such a pleasure to have you here. yeah yeah super lovely Love it. <laughs>